Hello, and welcome to the latest English Network Revision podcast. Today, you're joining myself, Ted. I'm Emily. I'm Alex. So, uh, today we are looking at the poem Charge of the Light Brigade by Alfred Lord Tennyson. Uh, arguably, perhaps the most famous poem from the anthology, and certainly one that was very well known um, in preceding generations in Britain. Uh, so let's dive into it and look at it in a little bit more detail. And we're going to go over to the very capable hands of Al Barton. What have you got for us? Hey, man on the spot. Well, self-entitled, yes. Don't, don't deny me that title. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think it's important to start with the kind of historical context which surrounds this poem. Um, so it looks at the role of um, human error and kind of like the structural inadequacies of the British military at the time, mm-hmm. um, how that caused such tragic loss of life. Uh, but the, the battle took place during the Crimean War, the Battle of Balaclava, and it was a, it was a war fought by Britain alongside the Ottoman Empire and France against Russia. Um, ostensibly, it was about um, the rights of Christians in the Holy Land and yeah. protecting those rights, yeah. and it was, a, it, was a, it was a dispute between Russia and France. But really what we're looking at is a kind of um, a balance of power game. That's the reason why Britain got involved, trying to limit Russian influence in the con- mm. on the continent. It's kind of a, it's a historical issue. It goes way beyond, um, way before kind of like modern day where it's still an issue. Yeah, and the Crimea is still a flash. And the Crimea, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Crimea is kind of like uh, the gateway into Russia, isn't it? Is it? And it's something that or they want Europe to control. Or the other way around. Exactly. Um, and the, I think what's also important at this, at this point in history, we've got that, we're still in that overlap stage between mechanical warfare yeah. and, the, and the, old, the old-fashioned cavalry, hand-to-hand combat. Um, and when those two clash, like saw most obviously in during World War I, only um, 60 years later, it was, it, the results could be devastating. Yeah. Um, and this charge, which, which saw light cavalry charge against Russian guns, Russian cannons, artillery, um, was light an example of Light meaning lightly armed, as in... Yeah, so light light cavalry were like scout were, were designed to scout battlefield battlefields to chase down enemies that were fleeing. They weren't heavily armored. They weren't even heavily armed. They weren't uh, they supposed were, to face yeah, the enemy. They were mobile. They were they were they were there for their mobility, not for their kind of military effectiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a uh, what happened is actually kind of shrouded in confusion. Lots of conjecture. Um, but what essentially happened is that there was there was a miscommunication. Some there it could be a honest mistake. Some some um, say that it it was kind of like something more nefarious going on, where individuals trying to make names for themselves yeah. or trying to establish themselves, kind of their own careers almost. But the result was six hundred soldiers rode into um, a, just Sorry, rode into Jeff. an onslaught, yeah. um, and you know over a hundred of them were, were killed within about a twenty minute period. Hundred um, over a hundred more wounded, and. There's, there's this kind of like interesting story about how it happened and how the order came down from the, the commander of the, of the army to the commander of that light brigade. Mm-hmm. And then how the messenger, a um, guy called Nolan, is po- possibly um, kind of like miscommunicated the order in order for him to get the cavalry. He had an interest in the cavalry going and, and kind of like making a name for himself because yeah. that was kind of his, that was his area of expertise. That's something he'd been pushing for. But the the whole point is to is to think about how these well first of all we've spoken a lot in a lot in the the previous conflict poems about how the individual soldier is kind of used as nothing nothing more than a pawn yeah um, their their human worth or dignity isn't really taken into consideration and this is kind of an obscene um, demonstration of that because we're yeah. looking at we're looking at people putting 
literally putting hundreds of lives on the line purely for what a career mm-hmm. um, but then you can you can strip that back to why were britain in why did britain enter the war in the first place it was a Absolutely. strategic decision it was just a calculated risk yeah. and every time decisions like that are made there's there's always a there's always a body count mm-hmm. um and tennyson we can see kind of as he he was trying to he was trying to display it to the public exactly um kind of what happened yeah. and and to tell yeah, that story you do get the sense as you read this poem that he's kind of grappling with his different duties as an artist as a poet as a public figure um he's kind of grappling with perhaps kind of the the emotional public response to this tragedy but also the the victorian british identity and their sense of self-worth and i think this poem is quite interesting as it comes it was the first major military engagement since the battle of waterloo which to this day is still a pinnacle of kind of imperial pride in, um, in terms of uh, military accomplishments. And this, I think, really shook. This disaster, it was so such a futile waste of life. Mm. This really shook the British public and their kind of faith in the establishment, their faith in the aristocracy, yeah. their faith in the, the institution that the British Army was at that time. From yeah. there. And that's important to, to point out, like the, the way that it was structured, I uh, hinted at before, um, is that in order to be in a position of command, mm-hmm. you know, you had to, you had to be, um, of the right birth. Yeah, had to be yeah. of the right birth, but wealthy enough, you know, you had to buy your own horse and you had to um, fund your own armor. And it wasn't, it wasn't like a, a professional army, volunteer yeah. army like we see today. Um, so that in it kind of inevitably, it wasn't, it wasn't a meritocracy. It wasn't the best leaders get to the top. It was, mm-hmm. you know, who do you know? It was kind of nepotism. It was corrupt. And that's never a recipe for effectiveness. Especially when not coming up against the cannons. Um, so, Ted, you touched on it, but it's important to note that Tennyson was poet laureate at this point. So, Wordsworth had died. Tennyson had been positioned with that sort of title as a nation's poet. So, he's got the duty, hasn't he, to not only talk about matters of public interest, but also display the nation in, in a good light, almost. So, I think before we even start analysing the poem, it's important to think that there are sort of two interpretations of the poem. There's one where he is uh, celebrating the efforts of those involved, the heroism involved, the honour, the glory that comes with putting your life on the line for, in the name of your country. And then uh, the, those more cynical amongst us, I suppose, could say that he has this thinly veiled criticism of any war where one man's blunder can lead to such a tragic loss of life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think especially for modern readers, where we don't have the same idea of martyrdom, of honour, of glory, we can almost engage more with that thinly veiled critique of what I think Tennyson was maybe trying to say. You alluded to the fact that it was one of the first uh, real-time responses in terms of the reporting going on at the time and the fact that Tennyson actually wrote this poem having read about the battle live in the newspapers as it was occurring almost. It still hadn't been found out who was going to be overall victorious in the war. So the fact that he wrote it at this time, it's an honest reflection of how he wanted to portray the country Mm -hmm. at that time. But obviously we have to bear in mind that may he have felt that duty as poet laureate to present the country, the leadership, the government, the army commanders in a certain way. Um, It's one of the first poems that really raises in real time the sort of, it makes answerable to public opinion those political and warfare decisions, doesn't it? And And the start of a growing trend. I mean, before that, you were able to very much control the narrative of a war. There were no kind of reporters on the scene and, and as war has gone on we've kind of been given more and more access to the real nature of war and that's 
very much change the way the public perceives war. And I think this poem, as you as you mentioned there, is really interesting in that it's quite divisive. Mm-hmm. Um, this may shock you to know, but as a young child, I was quite nerdy. Uh, I spent a lot of <laughs> no. my time... Yes, I know, reading about British history and watching war films. And I can remember as a kid, uh, like, reading this poem and really liking it and thinking that it's really patriotic... Um, and it's quite interesting now I think a lot of my friends who studied English literature at university really don't like this poem they see it as very patriotic and then giving a yeah. sentimental version of war and it's they see it as conjuring up kind of a, a imperial pride but maybe I'm by nature more inclined to be sympathetic to this poem but you know there's lines in here that I think look at the that ask questions about war itself and is there is there anything to be praised in it is there worth to be found in it you know, and it looks at the way human nature reacts to war, engages mm-hmm. with it. And I think it asks some really interesting questions. And how we talk about it afterwards as well. There's, there's this idea that the artist, Tennyson, the artist here, has the power to portray. Yeah. And I think especially us as modern readers, we have the real power to infer here. We can infer it one way or another. We don't feel any sense of political or legal almost duty to feel that national pride. In other countries still, that's not the case. You, you have these opinions and beliefs forced upon you that yeah. you must be patriotic. <laughs> And so on. Um, and I think this idea of the artist having the ultimate power, you can see the links here with sort of war photographers, Imandius, Milas, Duchess. And this idea that in the permanence of art, only we as critical readers or viewers of art can actually appreciate and cast our own almost aspersions onto that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're about to do, isn't it? Yeah. The rest of the podcast. I would also just say that I don't. Th- I don't think there's much of a contradiction to say that he can. He can simultaneously be criticising the whole idea of war or the decision yeah. to go to war, or the or the um, the, the the leadership, while still um, admiring and glorying those men. Who- for for critics of the poem, what they find um, grating is that that any kind of redemption or that any positives can be found from this tragedy. Mm. And I think that this poem has unintentionally, perhaps for Tennyson, been used as a rallying cry of heroic bravery. And yeah. I think people find it upsetting that a poem which is all... That basically a, historic, loss. a historic screw-up, yeah. by, mm. by all senses, could be used in any way to p- p- portray the military and war in a positive light. Um, so you, uh, listeners, have to make up your own mind as we talk through the poem. So let's get into it. Um, we all know through my uh, expert analysis that the first sign of any poem is entirely significant and important. But so, you don't want to discuss it today. But no, I, I so handed back. over I the back. You know, I don't want uh, people to be living in my shade. So, um, what have you got for us? Well, I'm the expert. Uh, a league, for example. So the poem throws us right into the action. Uh, we don't have any preamble. We don't have any introduction. And I think that really speaks to the fact that this was written almost at the time of this war. Um, the fact that Victorian readers of the poem would have known exactly what was going on. They didn't need any sort of introduction. We are thrown, as were the soldiers, straight into the battle. With the commands, we can always hear the voice of the army military commander. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward. Um, a league is a measure of distance, roughly three miles, so half a league. He's commanding them to charge forward. And he commands them straight away in that third line into the valley of death. Okay, And I think it's just a really important point to note. Um, obviously, it's a valley, so the idea in between two mountains, an area of entrapment, you could say, often seen as a thing of beauty, but obviously from a military point of view, an area where your views may be limited. You know, the enemy may be waiting at the end of the valley. Mm-hmm. It's difficult from a tactical point of view to ride into a valley. And a purposeful biblical allusion there from Tennyson with the valley of death from Psalm 23. So in Psalm 23, we have this reference to the valley of death. And David, who is basically riding into the valley, yet says he feels assured, he feels confident because he knows that he has God with him. 
Okay, he refers to God with his rod and his staff and this idea that God as the great shepherd will lead him and will guide him. And I think this purposeful reference there with this biblical allusion, Psalm 23, is almost the start of Tennyson's message about why we follow in war or why we follow leaders even. And this idea of almost blind obedience, you know, people don't follow God because there is material proof of him. They follow from a sense of duty or belief or something that they can't reason with, but they just feel that they should follow. It's faith, absolutely. Um, So this idea that he puts uh, the commander, so whether it's Lord Cardigan or Nolan, whoever sent that order, he puts them here in this sort of godlike position. And Mm. he has the soldiers as mere sheep following their shepherd Mm. and this idea that in terms of the power dynamic between those who command and those who follow, I think he really sets it up quite nicely with that metaphor. And, and that kind of allusion to faith is quite interesting that, you know, the nature of uh, the, the military structure is that it it elevates your commanders to a position where you just have to have unquestioning faith yeah. in them. Yeah. In the same way that religion elevates, you know, your deity and your God to yeah. that unquestioning position. You know, no, no private is going to question a sergeant, no sergeant is going to question a lieutenant and so on and by so on and so, so forth. And you know that very much links with the the issue, perhaps that's at the, the heart of this tragedy. Um, and just in quite a similar vein, as we look at the, um, the, the the literal command he gives here, you know we have four the light brigade charged the guns, and we see the exclamation marks there. So we get a sense of the kind of the, you know, the, the aggression and the violence and the tension in this moment. And I just want to talk about those two uh, imperative verbs: mm. forward and charge. And I think there's a neat little bit of structure here, which I'll come back to later in the in the use of these. But in this first stanza, it's giving that the, that sort of the, the tone of military commandment. You know, it's it's clear, it's straightforward. It's it does not expect uh, a response or reply. Absolutely, the combat it's just, answer, Yeah, it's we? just a complete instruction there. Forward the light brigade. That kind of you know, almost like you're talking to. Uh, you know, you just give this commandment. You're not expecting any response, and then charge for the guns. It's this creating this um, assertive, confident, aggressive tone that's so common in uh, commands issued by your. Uh, superiors in the military and the, the the final point to make about the first stanza i think is is the introduction of this structural um technique of anaphora um the first two lines half a league and then half a league so starting the lines with the same phrase same collection of words same consecutive course, lines um, yeah. consecutive lines and um it's just interesting because just picking up on something both of you are saying there um first of all repetition of this half a league yeah. i mean it's such a vague um kind of unit of measurement isn't it it seems no to one be, even knows how far it is we yeah we, we, we yeah we've been arguing about it it's we know between it's three and, and 20 miles <laughs> it's definitely not um, 20 miles we've established that either way it's, it says it says something about the nature of those orders it's kind of like um go over there about a mile and a half and yeah. then you'll reach your you'll you'll reach your mission objective it's Death. hardly the kind of precision that you'd expect from like a modern um, yeah. military force but also, anaphora itself is, a, is, is usually used as a rhetorical device. Yeah. It's something you see in political speeches. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that's supposed to suggest purpose and kind of like unwavering certainty, um, a command of the situation. So I'm not sure that if Tennyson was trying to either, it, well, it could be that he's adding that kind of same kind of political rhetorical rhythm to the poem, yeah. but also mirroring that certainty, the certainty of the order, despite the fact that the the objective or the location of the, of the enemy is so vague um, and that kind of uh, almost juxtaposition between um, the kind of the, the, the human the language yeah the human certainty and then the obviously human fallibility the fact that it was it was just such a disaster um, that's just something that I think you can pick up on all the way through this poem 
Yeah, that's interesting now. The way you are discussing half a league, half a league. And in fact, a lot of this poem, it falls into the dactylic rhythm. Uh, this idea of one stressed syllable followed by two unstressed syllable. And this creates sort of a rhythm, a almost rousing call, a beat without a pause, um, the fast pace, mimicking the galloping of the horses, okay? The ongoing motion, forward, forward, half a league, half a league. They don't stop. The rhythm doesn't stop. It continues just, it's in wavering and it's rhythm just like the soldiers were in wavering mm-hmm. in their following of the commands. And I think we keep saying, you know, they followed, there was a hierarchical structure in the military. They followed without question. And Alex, you're going to come on to talk about that significant couple of lines in the next stanza. It's worth remembering, though, we can't be critical of the individual soldier for not continuing to ride forward because, like, let's face it, they're in a battle, there are horses surrounding them. And this idea of cowardice, like they had no choice, you know, they did see it as an honour to die for their country. Mm -hmm. So it's almost, we talk about the imperatives. Actually, did they even need to be used because they were, by signing themselves up and by going forward, committing themselves to die if they needed to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and that's definitely shown in the second stanza again. It's the the quotation from the commanding officer forward, the light brigade. and then this this kind of rhetorical question was there a man dismayed? Um, and of course there wasn't. These these soldiers um, were there to to do a job. Um, they they knew exactly what what they had to do. They they were trained to follow orders. Um, but then it says not though the soldier knew someone had blundered. And again, there's probably purposeful ambiguity around who it was who had blundered. Mm-hmm. It's not again. It's not sure. We're not sure now. Um, there's there's plenty of different people saying it, blaming on. Um, different individuals who were who were at the scene. That refers um, back, doesn't it? He's polar, yeah. He can't cast aspersions on the well, that's person. What I mean, but yeah. also the fact that it was so well reported in the Victorian media, even this use of 600, that was um, how they were being referred to in the mm. papers as the 600, noble 600, the brave 600. So actually maybe in his, in his ambiguous use of someone, he doesn't need to name and shame because the public are well aware of the facts. He's yeah. there to provide yeah. almost this... I don't know, it's difficult well, to say the able, human he, stance, but, but the, the more descriptive sense of what was going on as opposed yeah, to what the news yeah. were reporting. And he's able to assume that kind of like dual identity Absolutely. in terms of like the, the poet um, and the artist, but also the, the almost like government ambassador or the, 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 um, someone who's supposed to glorify Britain. Um, so then again, anaphora used again um, in the second stanza, theirs not to make reply, theirs not to reason why, theirs but to do and die. Um, and again, it just... Going back to this idea that we see all the way through this, of this conflict between um, the the intrinsic human worth of the individual mm. um, and how that is that's challenged in circumstances such as these. When you become a soldier, it's, it's almost like you hand over that that intrinsic yeah. human worth. Yeah. You become an an instrument to be uh, or an asset to be disposed of. You know, whenever whenever is necessary, lay your life down for the cause. Um, and this, I think, this quite poignantly um, states that they're not they they don't question it, um, they don't think about it, and their there is their role is simply to go forward, to do as they're told, and and in this case, tragically, to die. Um, so dra- again, riding into the valley of death, it's that they put their faith into that idea. Um, you know, way before this moment, way before this charge, yeah. this deci- the, the decision, you think about like the decision to make a charge like this, that decision was made years previously, you know, the, and it, to, the backing out wasn't an option. By the soldiers, but sadly it seems that the, the commanding officers didn't put as much thought of it as, you, as you're implying those soldiers did in actually signing up for that. Yeah, 
and I, I just think I just think that's more of a point to make across the, the whole anthology about the role of the soldier yeah. so think yeah. of Bayonet Charge how is it that he came to that moment how was it in the cold plot work of Stars and Nations um He's, he's reflected back on that moment. These soldiers are in a, in a very similar circumstances. Maybe they were having similar thoughts, yeah. but what do you do? You keep going, you keep running across that green field towards the, the, the hedge or you go towards the guns, um, or you know you let fly in remains and you, 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 do, yeah. you do what you have to do because you're you there do. in those circumstances. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, as well, we, at the start, we talked about different possible interpretations of Tennyson's and, you know, intentions in writing this poem. And I think we can start to see that creeping through in the second stanza. So, yeah, Al, you kind of explored the rhetorical question there. Was there a man dismayed? And for me, there's almost a searching quality to that question. Was there a man dismayed? And it's kind of like he, he might be saying, yeah, was there a man dismayed? No, of course there wasn't. But logic would dictate that surely he could almost be saying, was there a man dismayed? And he's almost saying to himself, like, why didn't Did anyone... no one question this? Why, why wouldn't anyone? He's almost like... It almost beggars belief. He's almost exasperated that, that they're so faithfully obedient in, in carrying yeah. out their duty and then we have a certain degree of ambiguity as well in that line someone had blundered I mean what an understatement right yeah. I blunder if I forget to you know bring the poems I'm supposed to print to my lesson which I do all the time <laughs> that's a blunder a blunder is a blunder isn't getting hundreds of men yeah. massacred in a field in the Crimea uh, and it's just that understatement to me it kind of it gives enough scope for interpretation that Tennyson can perhaps appease his um, aristocratic uh, kind of overlords or at the same time giving giving food for thought yeah giving food for thought for his uh, perhaps more liberal critical audience it's interesting the way rhymes used to emphasise those points as well the fact that 600 um, obviously is then rhymed with blundered and wondered so all the world wondered someone had blundered the noble mm. 600 almost to put the emphasis actually on those words blundered. So although that makes up only one tiny part of the poem, the mistake, as it were, the way the rhyme schemes worked actually puts some kind of emphasis when we read it on that blunder. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like he, although limited potentially by his role as poet laureate, he does want to shine a light on the fact that actually someone, potentially this anonymous someone, has caused this death. And you know, if he's drawing our attention to that word blundered and we think of the associations with it, you know, when you blunder, you're kind of, you're careless, yeah. you're thoughtless, you've made a mistake. A mistake that often when we blunder, we're not always held that accountable to because mm -hmm. it's not that serious. So again, that could be perhaps a subtle but stinging criticism of the, um, those, the powers that be and that they've kind of, they made this thoughtless mistake, but they'll carry on with their lives. Yeah, and quite careers. dismissive of its, uh, yeah. its consequences, definitely. So moving into the third stanza, um, we've got the the uh, anaphora or anaphora, as we would say back anaphora. in Ireland. Anaphora. What have you got for a <laughs> So, I mean, this is quite a basic comment, but it's worth picking up if you're looking at the way it's set out on the page. The idea that anaphora here is used to suggest that bombardment they feel. So, the cannons to the right, cannons to the left, cannons in front of them. The idea of that entrapment they feel, there is no going back. Each, so Each line like a nail in the coffin almost, for the certain death. yeah, absolutely. Um, and... I think Alex, you talked about it before, but the idea that there is no... Before this, there's no reference to what they're running into. It's this valley, it's the great unknown, they're following the orders from a distance away. The cannons reaching. We've got to remember they're a lightly armed cavalry with only swords, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And they still continue to charge, so it's really important. They see the cannons ahead of them, they know they are riding into uncertain death, yet they're... Um, Unwavering in that sort of dedication. And absolutely. Is it patriotism, honour, glory, fear, potentially? Mm -hmm. Off they go into the cannons. And I think, you know, I'm 
I'm a big believer that if there's one simple comparison you can always make across poems. One obvious thing is always look for the use of imagery and the way poets seek to kind of create evocative images through the use of similes and metaphors. But another simple comparison you can always make is the use of verbs to create tone. So in this poem, you know, this is a, a poem describing a battle. So look at the verbs that are used in the stanza. We've got volleyed and thunder. Thundered, we've got stormed at. Um, and these these verbs really kind of create the the, the chaotic, violent atmosphere yeah. uh, that was the case in this instance. So volleyed and thundered, this idea that like thunder from heaven, something which you can't really see, but which brings up an instinctual fear for you. Um, these, you know, these cannonballs are firing at them, bringing a certain death, but they can't anticipate when it's going to strike or how powerful it's going to be or even what angle it's going to come from. And this idea of volleyed, you know, this idea that there's this bombardment, it's, it's yeah. not ceasing. And again, the, you know, the verb stormed at, this idea that it's kind of this um, almost wrathful, vengeful force of nature that's surrounding them. Yeah, unrelenting, yeah. all-encompassing, it's there, it's surrounding them. I think you reference the verbs for action are really interesting too. I often compare this with bayonet charge in the sense that they are both, you know, as obvious from the titles, charges. Mm-hmm. Yet this seems to play, take place over such a longer period of time. Yeah. Yet we don't lose the sense of the action because of that. So Tennyson does really well there to maintain that sense of pace with the dactyl rhythm, with the use of verbs, to show that a lot of this was happening in the moment. You know, the reality of this battle, we almost have more time to pause and think yeah. with Bayonet Charge, which seems ironic in the sense that that was taking place over a mere matter of seconds as mm-hmm. he went over the top. Whereas this is over a long period of time where... Soldiers could have had reflective moments. You know, yeah. if this tale was told from the perspective of one soldier, I'm sure we would see quite a more critical poem. Yeah. Uh, and then we've got these, these, you know, this kind of pair of iconic lines, into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell. Yeah, so I think just this is the first kind of like, I'm just double-checking, but I'm pretty sure it's the first metaphor that he uses in the poem. Um, he talks about, the, talks about the valley of death, but I think that's more like a, we said it more like a biblical reference, yeah. but, now, mm. but now he changes that. So he calls it the jaws of death. So just kind of like in comparison to what he's saying there. So the death that they experience, the jaws, um, it's something that's, they're being, they're being torn apart. They're being bitten. Mm. Um, it's something, the storm it's, of it's, death. It's vicious. Um, it's something that's consuming them. It's kind of like they, they are just, they're being kind of like drawn into this, mm-hmm. um, this like, we, like we said, a certain death. Those um, metaphorical teeth, obviously, being the Russian cannons, then yeah, about to chomp them alive. Yeah, definitely, and the, and the, and just the the kind of noise and chaos and mm. almost like random slaughter mm. which is taking place there. Um, that's just an in, it kind of really um, gives a sense of the violence of the of the situation, um, and that's then. Uh, kind of reinforced into the mouth of hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're, not, we're, we're talking about, I, I don't think you're saying that the soldiers are going to hell when they die. It's, talking, it's no. more talking about the, the, the hellish scenario that everyone we're talking about. Um, cannonball, which are exploding, there's smoke, um, fire, um, ash all over the place, men screaming, blood, bone, and, you know, just complete Absolutely. carnage. Um, and this is the kind of this is the reality of war. You know, forget all the um, the noble sacrifice part yeah. of it. Um, similar, you know, we, you see it in kind of like Wilfred Owen's poetry, talking about the reality of what it is to, to fight um, and well. to die. Um, and Tennyson is is explicitly exploring that, or explicitly expressing um, the hellish reality of, of conflict. Yeah, I, I, I always encourage people not to really go too much down that route of analysing hell. In fact, you can see from the lack of capitalization of hell, I don't think Tennyson even means that in almost a religious sense, especially when you see that he's capitalised death above it, almost as if they've signed up to death and no longer is that Lord, the, the great shepherd, mm-hmm. of any significance to them. Because in that moment, 
it is really no sort of comforting factor anymore about what they're doing it for, why they're doing it. In the moment, yeah. nothing else matters. It's death, and uh, that's what they've signed up to face. And for me, I always think of this poem as perhaps something of an oblique reference to the the ever-present nature of, of death in war. So, that, you know, they're going into the jaws of death and they're going to the mouth of hell. And I really like that idea, Al, that they're being offered up as kind of meat on the platter, fresh meat. Mm. Uh, and this idea that war will always consume and will always kind of um, ravish your kind of like like innocent way, yeah. flesh. I like the way you said um, that, actually. That's something nice to And yeah, on. I just, this, this, I think that idea that, it, in my mind, it conjures this idea of like death is waiting. There. Yeah. It's, not, it's not even necessary, but it's literally there with its mouth open, kind of waiting. Yeah. As it's always yeah. inevitable that these people, these lives are lost. But it it's also sad, isn't it, it? it speaks to the, the heroism of the act as well, because it's kind of they were faced with with hell itself, and yeah, they and they, and they rode right into it. Into it. Yeah. And, that, and then as you go, as you go into the into the fourth stanza, um, we see that that anaphora again at the start, but it's rep- the repetition of the verb flashed. Yeah. And I think that's just an interesting. Um, it's talking about the flash of the sabers, the swords, the flash of metal, but it's also the fact that, you know, this is the light brigade. These are, this is, these are heroic, um, soldiers. These are people who are beacons. They're the kind yeah. of people that, um, they're people who Tennyson greatly admires and wishes to honor and wants his readers, um, both contemporary and modern to really, um, appreciate the, the sacrifices yeah. they've made. Mm-hmm. I think the adjective bear there. So obviously literally what they're doing is unsheathing their swords, uh, to raise them in the air, to take the army sort of right on. But I think the adjective bear there suggesting almost like they're exposed, they're vulnerable, and they're honest actually in what they're doing. Yeah. So in direct contrast to what we were saying about the commanders who may have had ulterior motives, you have the honesty of the soldier in the moment yeah. here who's giving all they have got and that's all they can offer. Yeah. And I think that the the fact, again, we spoke about the context of this battle. We're talking about um, light cavalry going up against heavy guns. It's an act of defiance to, to mm-hmm. draw your sword, to to face hell, the jaws of death, and to go anyway, kind of resolutely into that into that fate. Um, again, that's just clearly, I think, clear that Tennyson is is glorifying um, their bravery and their sacrifice. Definitely, and I think there's um, there's a, a, a brief brief nod to the. Um perhaps insanity of what they're doing there in the next line, charging an army. And I find it quite interesting in that he uses that kind of quite vague term, charging an army. As opposed to the quite specific and small 600. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like he's literally got this idea of them charging against against impossible odds. And again, that's something that I think could slip past the attention of a less critical reader. But I think for an audience that wants to find... (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) But I think for an audience that perhaps wants to find a criticism of the war, I think that line, charging an army, is deliberately vague there. Uh, While all the world passively waited and mm-hmm. read the news at home and wondered what was going on. But also wondered at the, at the amazing feat yeah, that they did. Yeah, that's so true. Kind of like, this is a, I can't believe this is that they've actually done this. It's kind of, it's something that's... Um, or you, I can't believe one man's blunder can cause mm-hmm. this much. I mean, again, yeah. there's that deliberate ambiguity, isn't it? Is it, is it, yeah. is it kind of an, like, we're astonished by their bravery, we're astonished by perhaps their stupidity. It, mm-hmm. is, it is open to interpretation. What is it that leaves us wondering? Are we inspired by their bravery or are we bemused by their um, blind obedience? Yeah. Yeah. I think in the sounds as well, we also see, you know, the continued use of kind of verbs to create the tone in the atmosphere. So sabering the gunners there, you know, that kind of that, that violent um, verb to refer to how they're cutting through these soldiers. And we've also got the verb plunge. They're kind of going head first. Yeah. Full throttle without thinking twice through the mm-hmm. battery smoke. They can barely see where they're going. They don't know yeah. what's around the corner. The- 
sorry, just that the plunged as well is like a really interesting verb in terms mm-hmm. of like just lack of control. I think yeah. if, if, you, if you if in doubt, pick a word like that and think, well, yeah. what does that mean? Like yeah. you plunge yeah. in something, it's kind of like you're going wildly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, and I think that's uh, that's just a important thing to remember when you when you do a poetry analysis like this. There is always just you could just pick one word. We probably missed ten in the last oh, yeah. five minutes just talking about. Um, and ver- I think again, up. verbs are always a really good one yeah. to look for because they're so important for creating you know tone and action in the poem. Um, and then we've got again shattered and sundered, uh, which it's think- interesting the idea of how much detail Tennyson goes into at this point. This, by the way, is the time where he's basically saying there is some glory to take from this because some of the Russian soldiers fell here, so they were reeling from the saber stroke, shattered and sundered. So having been exposed to these bare, honest sabres or swords, they now break apart. The army starts to break apart. And you see that that detail of their defeat sort of takes a few lines up. And we can juxtapose that with later on when he describes the sorrowful fall almost of the British shoulders. He only gives that the four lines while Saul's and hero fell. Mm-hmm. And the idea that that takes a much more solemn note when the British soldiers die there, the sparse detail he almost wants to sanitise their suffering there and instead mm. he gives the detail to the glory, the honour, because even though they went in so lightly armed, they were able to kill. Mm-hmm. And also we know Victorians were supposedly great animal lovers. I love the idea that he has to put in a little... A little about the horse. For the chattering classes and those of them, like, what about the horses? The horses died as well. All was lost. Um... Yes, yeah, so and, and the fifth stanza repeats a lot of the stuff that's already been said before. We, again, we see that they, they, they're surrounded by cannon. We see these violent verbs of volleyed and thundered. They're stormed mm-hmm. out with shot and shell. I think this repetition, again, is talking about the relent... It, it reflects the relentless nature yeah. of the attack, the fact that there was, there was no escape. It wasn't kind of like... There was no mercy given. It was no quarter given. Um, and then they came... But then it's talking about those who survived. So they came through the jaws of death. They came back from the mouth of hell all that was left of them, left of that 600. Yeah. So there was kind of like, there were those few people, few soldiers who'd managed, you know, largely through luck, but also like no less through bravery, um, were able to to survive the charge. Um, and they're the, they're the ones who Tennyson now kind of like draws he our, now, our attention that final stanza. directs our sympathy to as well. And yeah. I think it's quite interesting going back to kind of the context of this poem, you know, Tennyson wrote this in kind of a, a flurry of, of, of feeling and supposedly you know, he was back in I think his cottage in Kent or somewhere somewhere very nice and expensive <laughs> down. and he was he was singing this poem he was singing it to himself he's out for a walk he started singing and he rushed back to his cottage to write it and there's definitely a lyrical quality here in the sense that the lines are very brief description is treated with brevity and is almost as a distraction he tries to keep it full of action but he also has these lines repeating themselves to give it a much you know, make it easier to memorize in a sense and this was a poem that came to be memorized by so many by public school boys by kind of soldiers themselves um and that repetition while it keeps the poem simple you know it really it's emphasizes memorable. the points yeah. and makes it easy to remember and that's what Anna Ford is as well. Yeah. Is that, again, it's, it's, it's a rhetorical piece as much as it is. A, there is so much piece. rhetoric in here, even like, you know, you can spot tripling, uh, rhetorical questions, obviously the metaphor, the anaphora, the repetition. It almost does seem like that rallying call. And you yeah. can see like Ted was saying before. language as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Why this can be seen quite critically as something which does mm. glorify war, because it seems almost at times like a rhetorical rallying cry. Mm. So, uh, you know, the... A really important line in the, in the last stanza here, we have this idea that 
when can their glory fade? And I, I think it's quite interesting here, this, you know, again, the ambiguity of this question, you know, how do we interpret the tone here? When can their glory fade? Um, is Tennyson perhaps kind of saying, uh, how could we ever forget them? How could we mm-hmm. ever forget such a noble sacrifice? Or is he perhaps here wondering, when can the glory fade? And no matter when it is, will that ever make it worth it? Yeah. Even if they're remembered forever, does that justify this needless slaughter? And, you know, we can't be certain in, to, in what tone that question is going to be read. And it creates that room for interpretation. Is he bewildered by their bravery or bewildered by their foolishness? Mm. Yeah. Um, and there's room for interpretation. And how yeah. long does glory last? I think we've talked about that mm-hmm. with a lot of the poems. You know, so many soldiers go into war with this idea of patriotism with glory and yet quickly seem that they're not remembered after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the irony is that we're sitting here reading it and discussing it now because actually we are remembering them in some sense or another. Yeah. And I think it's really important, like Alex was saying, that we can read his criticism of the leaders without seeing it as a criticism of the soldiers themselves. Mm-hmm. It's sad in a way that they're only ever treated as this homogenous group, the 600. We don't see their individual struggles, but actually that repetition right till the end of the 600, it makes it clear that we should remember them as a whole, whether they lived, died, whatever, because yeah. yeah. they put their lives on the line. And yeah. just, just to return to an earlier point, so this is something I mentioned structurally, he chooses to start the poem off using these imperative verbs to show the kind of the um, you know, commanding militaristic style. And it's important to note that in the final stanza, he, he mimics that style himself. He says... Honours as a reader. Absolutely. Honour the charge they made, honour the light brigade, noble 600. Now, I'm never entirely certain, you know, what exactly Tennyson meant here, but I think there is not that room, much room for interpretation in this final stanza. He's not so much talking about their duty anymore, but he's talking about our duty as a reader. Yeah. That regardless of whether or not their, their, their death was needless, regardless of whether or not it achieved anything, there is a duty on us to remember the sacrifice they're made. Whether or not it accomplished anything is irrelevant. They are dead. They, they died bravely. They died yeah. for a cause they believed in that relates to kind of British identity. So he's not appealing to his readers here. He's giving them an instruction that you must honour them. And that's the interpretation I usually go with in this poem, that yeah. regardless of what he thinks about the sacrifice, he undoubtedly believes that we have a duty yeah. to remember um, this story and, and the lives that were lost in this battle. Absolutely. Um, I just want to add one more anecdote. Uh, well, not an anecdote, uh, a story from this battle. So Siegfried Sassoon was really, really interested. Siegfried Sassoon was an anti-war poet in World War I, uh, who's uh, Wilfred Owen's mentor. And he was really interested in this battle. And one of his journals, uh, he's reading an account of the war when he was at um, Craig Lockhart recovering from his illness. And there were three soldiers in the light brigade who, before they went out for the battle, were smoking cigarettes and had their jackets unbuttoned. And the commanding officer, um, whose name I forget, s- saw them. And he was furious about the fact they were so casual before they were going into battle. You know, smoking jackets off, not respecting the proper order. So he made them charge into the battle with no weapons. Right. Now, two of them survived, and when they returned, they were tied onto uh, uh, tighter trees and whipped in front of the remaining members of the Light Brigade. Wow. And I think, you know, th- this poem looks at this idea, going back to the line, there's not to reason that why, there's not to make reply, there's but to do and die. This idea of if someone told me that not only did I have to go and die in something that this battle, even if they got into these cannons, would it have had any enormous impact on the outcome of this Crimean War, which was unnecessary in the first place? But they charge in. Yeah. So not only did these soldiers charge in, they charged in without guns. Yeah. And then they survived and they allowed themselves to be whipped and all mm. out of the sense of duty. And I think that for me, that story just sums up the 
for sanity, us. Yeah. yeah. Of just kind of like when you put... I mean, if maybe perhaps if I was in the army, I'd feel different about it. But for me, that's yeah. just absolutely mind-boggling. It is. Uh, oh, I think that's all the time. <laughs> yeah. I think oh. that's all the time we have for today. Uh, we are coming towards the end of the anthology. I know. Now. So only uh, two left, is it? Indeed. Yeah. So make sure you are tuned in, listening, and ready for the, the latest analysis. So it's goodbye from me, Ted. It's goodbye from me, Emily. And from me, Alex. Thank Bye, you. Bye, listeners. <laughs>